0: One moment, a business is on top of its game, profitable and well-respected. In the next moment, it could be the victim of a major fraud with potentially catastrophic consequences, financial losses, damaged reputation, diminished stakeholder value, scrutiny, even bankruptcy. These stories are all too common in today's business headlines. While some organizations recover, others don't make it. How do you minimize the risk of fraud and avoid the devastation? Welcome to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Our goal is to prevent your organization from becoming one of the statistics. Now, here is Chris Marquet. Good morning, good morning, Fraud Talkers.
1: I am your host, Chris Marquet on the Voice America Online Radio Network. We have a great program uh, for you today with my special guest, Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope, who is a professor of accounting and MIS at DePaul University's Dry House College of Business in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Pope teaches a graduate-level course in forensic accounting, among other things, and is an expert in white-collar fraud. She is currently finishing up a documentary on the Rita Cronwell embezzlement case uh, up in Dixon, Illinois, which uh, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar, and we're going to get into that case uh, in detail today uh, with Kelly. But before we, uh, we uh, speak with Dr. Pope, uh, who will join us in a minute, let us not forget our mantra, which is at any time in any organization, there's always somebody who's up to no good. And uh, Fraud Talk is here to help educate the business community about the perils and pitfalls of fraud in today's economy me We're here to tamp it down, squelch it, shed some light on it, and hopefully stem the tide of fraud, which is like a leech on society, sucking the lifeblood out of businesses all around us, and that's no joke. Uh, Remember, the call-in line for the program is 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790 if you would like to join the discussion this morning. Uh, You can also find us online on the major social media, including Facebook, linkedin and twitter at fraud talk and we use the hashtag fraud talk also on our blog which is fraud talk on the blogspot host web hosting system or you can also call me directly at or contact me at chris at marquet that's m-a-r-q-u-e-t international all one word. Dot com. if you've got a comment question or a suggested fraud of the week. Speaking of which, uh, this week's fraud comes to us from the New York City area. And it involves a CFO who embezzled $5.7 million from a local moving company. And it was just sentenced uh, this past week to six years in prison, uh, which is nice. Uh, and, let me, and let me tell you a little bit about this case. It's uh, <clears throat> Greg Pierleoni. That's G-R-E-G-G-P-I-E-R-L-E-O-N-I. Former CFO of Larchmont, uh, New York-based Collins Brothers Moving. Uh, <clears throat> he was uh, indicted last January on two Felony charges in, in federal court, accused of engaging in mail and wire fraud uh, to support an extravagant lifestyle and uh, and making lavish purchases, including including collectible coins and valuable artwork. Uh, Pierre Leone, 59. Uh, was facing up to 40 years in prison uh, after uh, embezzling the nearly $6 million in company funds. In fact, he pled guilty to one count of wire fraud uh, back in March, I believe it was, and has just been sentenced to the 72 months in prison federal prison in White Plains followed by three years of supervised release he was also ordered to pay more than four point eight million dollars in restitution to Collins brothers plus a million dollars to the uh, the company's insurance carrier which paid out its uh, fidelity uh, on its fidelity coverage uh, as well as one he was ordered to pay one point four million dollars to the IRS and folks this is where this is where a lot of you know you get nailed <laughs> the IRS the failure to pay taxes on your ill-gotten gains is a is a killer. Uh, so that's uh, something to remember if you're thinking about uh, stepping over the line. In any event, in this case. Uh, The theft spanned a seven-year period from 2006 through uh, just April of 2013, last year. Uh, And uh, and Pierre Leone was was at Collins Brothers after 26 years. Uh, He stole the money by transferring funds from their operating account to various other accounts and writing checks uh, to pay for his various credit cards. Uh, He paid for some, just to give you an idea here, $70,000 worth of Thomas Kincaid artwork, sports Memorabilia, more than half a million dollars in coins from the New York Mint, more than $40,000 in jewelry, uh, according to the federal um, affidavit uh, in support of the complaint, the criminal complaint. Uh, Also used money to pay for his Connecticut. Uh, income, uh, income and property taxes and he spent money on airline tickets, hotels, restaurants grocery bills, clothing, maid expenses, you name it this is so typical uh, <clears throat> according to the uh, court filings, Pierre Leone basically wrote out company checks and sent them through the mail to a post office in Newark, New Jersey to pay for his personal American Express bill and uh <clears throat> Inside the company as CFO, he was, of course, uh, responsible for payroll and and all, all manner of company finances uh, and all the financial duties while uh, w- being employed by the company. He was uh, asked to step down, apparently, uh, last April due to poor performance, and within a couple of weeks of hiring the new financial officer, the alleged thefts, uh, or I should say alleged, they're now confirmed, uh, thefts uh, came to the surface. Uh, One company source is quoted as saying, I was in shock. He's just a regular guy with four kids, a wife. Who would know? Um, he's a quote quiet and mild mannered person uh, who didn't have issues with the company, according to this uh, this inside company source uh, quoted in a, in, a, in one local article I'm reading. <coughs> uh, they didn't know his salary, but they kind of figured that figured that you know his wife came from money and a wealthy family or whatnot, and that's why uh, he was living you know comfortably quote unquote. And frankly, folks, you know, a few million dollars in the local in the New York City area, Fairfield County, where this guy lived, is isn't a big deal it's not a lot of money and frankly it takes it takes a lot to live in that part of the world Uh, so it probably wasn't too hard for this guy to uh, to you know live a a a lavish lifestyle so called uh, but not uh, go too far over the radar screen Um, in any event the uh you know this this source inside the company is quoted as saying sometimes you start start small and you want something and sometimes you get greedy maybe you couldn't stop well isn't that just rich uh <laughs> this case <laughs> This, this case is so typical, but I mean, what's atypical is again, it lasted seven years, a little longer than the normal major embezzlement case. You know, five point seven million dollars—nothing to sneer at. A lot of money uh, taken. The company, you know, uh, apparently didn't quite feel it. That, that you know, that, that that translates to a pretty significant chunk of time, even over a seven-year period. So, um, again, people, uh, this this person. I'm sure the, the the company, a family business, you know, treated him like family as well. he had been there for 26 years. He's an institution. And, fran- and frankly, the the theft probably went further than 7 years. They they probably went back statute of limitations and boom, you know, 7 years was all they could they 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 wanted it to go back but uh I wouldn't be surprised in the least if the thefts went didn't uh, predate uh, 2006 but that's just me just uh, just uh just theorizing here. So listen, I would I want to introduce my special guest today, Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope. Uh Dr. Pope, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. How are you, Chris? Thank you for having
1: me. Uh, Sure, sure. Uh, Listen, folks, Dr. Pope is... she has a BS degree in accounting at, from North Carolina's a uh, and State University, which she received in 1996, uh, and that was followed by a master's in accounting degree from Virginia Tech in 1997, and then again, uh, her PhD in accounting, for, also from Virginia Tech in 2001. Uh, she's got a very impressive background, and uh, I'd like to tell you uh, folks a bit about it. Um, <clears throat> Kelly Richmond Pope is currently an associate professor in the in School of Accountancy and MIS at DePaul University. She received her doctorate in accounting from Virginia Tech and is a licensed certified public accountant. She worked in the forensic accounting practice at KPMG on anti-money laundering engagements, insurance fraud in- investigations, and fraud risk management Projects. Her fraud research has been published in leading academic journals such as the Behavioral Research in Accounting, Auditing, a Journal of Theory and Practice, and the Journal of business ethics she co-authored the the uh, the article the abcs of behavioral forensic using psychology to prevent detect and deter fraud which was pub- published by john wiley and sons and also uh she's been a freelance writer for forbes the daily beast and the washington post uh just to name a few uh Dr. Pope is the creator of the award-running educational white-collar crime documentary, Crossing the Line: Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crime. She participated in the inaugural Kartemkin's Diverse Voices in, in Doc's Fellowship Program, sponsoring uh, by the Academy of Motion Pictures and Science and Arts. And she began filming she began filming her upcoming documentary. All the Queen's Horses, shortly after the 2012 arrest of Rita Cronwell of Dixon, Illinois, uh, which we're going to talk about. Kelly has appeared on all kinds of uh, media, including Inside Edition. Uh, She was involved in the docudrama Forbidden, which is also about the Cronwell case, and her documentary, All the Queen's Horses, was featured uh, in, in the Tribeca Film uh, Festival and a final, uh, final in the, uh, for their institute grant. Uh, she serves on the board of directors for the Illinois CPA Society, uh, the Lynn Sage Breast Cancer Research Foundation, and the Institute of Business and Professional Ethics at DePaul University, and a governing council of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Wow. <laughs> Welcome, Kelly. <laughs> A mouthful. I'm sorry, I couldn't get all of that out. Kartemkin, is that right?
2: Kartemkin. Yeah, uh, okay. They're one, yeah, they're one of the uh, probably one of the top uh, documentary film houses in the United States, and they're based in Chicago.
1: Great. So <clears throat> now. Uh, Just to tell people, I've known Dr. Pope for several years now, and she and her graduate students are going to help me complete the the now grossly overdue 2013 Marquet Report on embezzlement. Uh, And she's not just an academic, obviously. She's a a practitioner with real-life experience, someone who has devoted a lot of time and effort to some cutting-edge research on the topic of white-collar fraud. Uh, Dr. Pope… Tell us, how how did you get into the business of fraud investigations and forensic accounting? And and was there like a case you worked on at KPMG that kind of hooked you in on into all this?
2: Well, this is my my background's a little bit different because um, once I finished Virginia Tech. I, um, went straight to teaching. So I was um, an assistant professor of accounting at UNC Greensboro. And so I was there for four years and there was a student of mine that did a research paper on forensic accounting. And I was relatively new to the field. I didn't know much about it and I was fascinated by the combination of psychology, criminology, law, accounting, and auditing all into this one field. So I started looking into it. And I um, contacted a partner that I knew at KPMG and said, this is definitely what I want to get into because I'm, I'm interested in a lot of these different subject areas. And so at the time I was not a CPA and he told me, well, Kelly, in order to go to the big four, you need to take the CPA exam. So I sat, studied, took the CPA exam. And then my uh, husband was finishing business school at UNC Chapel Hill and we moved to Chicago. And so instead of going back into academia, I went to KPMG and worked in their forensic practice and learned a lot but realized that the investigations were interesting but I never got to talk to the person that uh, was allegedly committing the crime and so I, I wanted to learn more about each case but I was always on the peripheral vision of a case and so I decided that if and when I ever went back into academia I would spend time interviewing white collar offenders because I felt like that was the best way to learn what happened. And so it wasn't a particular case at KPMG, I would say. It's probably all of the experiences that I had that really led me to have the desire to actually want to talk to the person that committed the crime. So, um I was at a conference, an academic conference, and there were two um, people that had just authored a book, um, by the name of Stolen Without a Gun and the authors were Neil Weinberg and Walt Pablo and um, they did a presentation I was fascinated by their presentation and I went up to Walt afterwards and said it would really be great to interview you on camera and start collecting uh, these types of interviews to use um, in the classroom and use for training purposes and that's really how everything started so one interview turned into a collection of probably over thirty interviews, just with offenders, and then I have interviewed experts and victims, and just everybody um, that's related to a fraud case. So that's how it all started. Wow! And so I, uh, I, we're going
1: to have to take a short break here, uh, and we're going to come back and uh, with our discussion with Dr. Pope in just two minutes.
0: Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact finding turn to marquet international world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation visit marquet or call 617-733-3304 workplaces are only as strong as their teams teams are only as strong as their individual members are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level we're here to help Listen for Leading with Social Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are tuned in to fraud talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at Marquet International.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to fraud talk.
1: And welcome back, Fraud Talkers. We are talking today with Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope, uh, who is a professor of accounting at uh, DePaul University's Dry House College of Business. And she teaches, among other things, a graduate level course in uh, forensic accounting uh, and has a number of uh, real world experiences. And she was just telling us about how she got involved in the uh, in this whole area of fraud, uh, starting with interviewing uh, real life uh perpetrators and victims and others uh welcome back dr Pope
2: thank you uh
1: so tell tell us a little bit more about these these interviews that uh, uh that you've done that you now use them as uh, as course material
2: well yes, i um realized that I felt like students needed to understand the circumstances of fraud in a very different way and I felt like the traditional cases of reading about a case wasn't as impactful so that's what led me to start recording them so I I have a crew of people that travel with me almost like a of reality show is sometimes what I feel like but um, we go on these interviews and we capture these stories so a lot of my teaching is using a storytelling approach and then I use the um, videos as a really to help the students empathize and understand how easy it is to commit a fraud um, like the story that you just talked about um, with the CFO in New York what's interesting when I'm talking to my students is I like to talk to them about the fact that we all have access to a lot of information. And if, you're, if you don't have a strong moral compass and keep that moral compass strong, it's easy to venture off onto these really terrible paths. And so that's how I really understand and, and explain to my students how good people can really make bad decisions because you sometimes you, you have access to so much information
1: Right. So you, um, your first documentary was called "Crossing the Line: Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crime." T- tell us about that. Uh, tell us about that program.
2: Sure. Well, it's um, it's a combination of four fraud stories, with um, ranging from an embezzlement case, um, a Ponzi scheme case. Um, a Ponzi scheme-like case and a financial statement fraud case, and so imagine American greed, but told from the perspective of the person committing the crime, as opposed to people talking about the crime. So it's um, six, about sixty minutes, and it's four different cases with um, people telling what happened, and it's really it's really interesting because you you. Really find yourself engaged into, in the story more than you probably would think you would. And I think that one of the differences between what that first film does and say what American Greed does is I think American Greed allows you to just watch it and crossing the line allows you to feel it because you, hearing from the person just helps you understand their thought process better. So when I teach the fraud triangle in my class, what I really focus on a lot is the rationalization component of fraud and I want students to really understand how people truly explain their behavior because once they can understand that I think we're better off them never doing that.
1: So uh, yeah explain the the fraud triangle for those who uh, are oh, not Oh sure familiar. I'm
2: sorry uh, the fraud triangle is um, rationalization opportunity opportunity and incentive and so um, we try to when we talk about fraud, we try to talk about it in that context. So let's use the case that you just mentioned at the opening of our show um, with the CFO. Um, his opportunity, of course, was that he was a CFO. Um, yeah, he had
1: he had complete access to the finances. Had complete access,
2: right, so he's and, got the
1: opportunity, no problem.
2: Right, and and the pressure and the rationalization we don't we don't necessarily know, but assuming that. There was some financial pressure, personal pressure, and I think you do a really nice job in your reports trying to help people understand the various pressures that people face in their personal lives. But the rationalization component is where I spend a lot of time because that's where I think people can learn empathy. And if you can understand that rationalization, that is what would prevent you from committing a fraud because you when you find yourself rationalizing something very similar to a person that's been in jail for 5 10 15 years that stops you in a way that i think um, other types of just traditional teaching approaches and just articles don't always do
1: so so in the case of mr Pierre Leone, uh, presumably the pressure might have been you know some years ago you know maybe his kids going off to college or whatever or his, you know his wife's demanding, you know whatever a, a certain lifestyle, and he starts stealing and realizing how easy it is to steal. Or maybe he was even thinking he was going to pay the money back. Uh, or you know maybe it was he maybe he used it to pay his his taxes, uh, which is one of the one of the things they specifically charged this guy with. Sure. Um, uh, but then it becomes really easy. And then all of a sudden he's doing it for a lifestyle. Uh, right. so it, it, to me, I think in this case, it, it kind of morphs into, or perhaps it morphs, or maybe it was just greed all along. Uh, I mean, here, here's a guy, you know, he, he comes across as a, as the ordinary person. Um, but he's stealing from the company, massive amount of money over a long period of time. How, you know, so how does he re- rationalize that? how, w- w- this is an area that really fascinates me, and I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it sometimes.
2: Well, people that I've interviewed uh, in the in the past, some of the ways that they've talked about that they've rationalized it is, I'm working hard and I'm not getting enough bonus. I'm not getting enough recognition. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. Or there's also this idea that people are aggressively optimistic that they think I'm going to do it this one time and I can fix it. And then fraud, as you know, is like a snowball effect because it's hard to fix it. Once you take one time, it's really hard to go and fix that mistake, especially if you're having one of the financial pressures that you always cite in your work. So I think the rationalization often is, I deserve this. I've worked hard for this. This is mine. Um, and, and that allows people to, to continue with what they're doing. When I approach my students, we don't talk about fraud in the traditional sense of, here's the case, this is what happened. I, I open my class with the question like, if you walked into this classroom and saw a bag of money sitting on the table, and it, what would you do? And, so
1: and nobody, the, nobody was there, you know, like the tree falling in the, in the forest.
2: Sure. And, and we write the questions down. What would what, what be your first thought? And when, when I do this exercise, their questions are, is there a camera in the room? <laughs> When's the next class coming? Am I alone? How much money is in the bag? When did the last class leave? So you can tell just what how they're thinking. And so I write these questions on the board, and then we really process that. You know, speaking of the Rita Cromwell case, when we talk about what happened in Dixon, Illinois, and for those that are listening, um, Dixon, Illinois is uh, 100 miles west of Chicago, and um, their city comptroller, Rita Cromwell, embezzled. $53 million over a 20 year period and she was sentenced to 19 and a half years in prison on February 13th of 2013, 2014. And when we, when I open my discussion about that case, I don't ask, I don't give them those facts of the case. What I ask them is, what would you do If you knew that you could live like a king or queen for 20 years off of $53 million and you know you stole it, but at the end of those 20 years, you'd have to go to jail for 20 years. What would you do? (laughs) And some of the questions that the students ask, first question is, how old am I? And so you can see that there's this cost benefit analysis that a lot of people are thinking about, but what it just goes to show you is how human we all are. And so um, fraud is never going to stop because it's such a human behavior, but we all are thinking about the cost-benefit analysis, will I get caught, how old am I, Um, how can I live? You know, they're thinking about the pros and the cons. And so I just try to stress with my class that we all have access, we all have opportunity, various opportunities to commit these things. What is going to stop you from actually doing it?
1: So in the case, uh, you know, in the case of our CFO, we're talking about uh, the rationalization, uh, probably uh, you know, which goes back to the 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 entitlement. I I I deserve this. I deserve mm-hmm. this lifestyle, or I deserve this money. I work hard. Uh, to me, that's sort of like the an entitlement mentality, um, rationalization that mm-hmm. uh, that a lot of folks I think employ. I deserves I didn't get my raise and these guys are screwing me over. I should have you know, should be paid X instead of Y. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna take and I don't feel bad about taking this money. It's I right. really deserve it. So I mean do you do you see that really as as, uh, as the overarching one of the overarching um, motivations?
2: I do. I mean I think that we all things. believe. Go ahead. I- I think that we all believe that we're entitled to live better. I think we all believe that, to some degree, that we we are we work for, far harder than we than we're valued. And I think that sometimes that belief just takes people into the wrong area, and and they figure out a way to commit fraud. Um, but I think we all feel oftentimes that we're entitled to to, to more than we have. You know, and, and especially when you start comparing yourself to another coworker, a neighbor, you know, they went to this type of school, they majored in this, this field, and I did this, I should be better than I am, and look how far they are when you start thinking, think, thinking about things that way. I think that also can allow you to rationalize some behaviors that you probably wouldn't rationalize if you didn't think that way.
1: Right. So we're going to have to take another short break here, folks, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes.
0: Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with Corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for the second stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The future of online TV is here. New exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C H R I -S 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 S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk.
1: And welcome back, uh, Fraud Talkers. We are talking today with Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope, who is a assistant professor at the uh at the DePaul University Dryhouse College of Business in accounting and she has authored a number of of uh, uh books and articles and one her book which is which she was a co-author is called The ABCs of Behavioral Forensics Using Psychology to Prevent Detect and Deter Fraud which uh was published uh, what was that in uh 2012
2: uh, 20- 2013 2013,
1: 2013. Okay. Tell us about the this book because it's an interesting uh, collaboration.
2: Sure. Well, I was a part of a writing team. Um, so my background is accounting. I'm a CPA. Um, in my uh, co-authors, there was a psychiatrist, a psychologist who's also an accounting professor, and a retired FBI agent. And we thought that the... Um, Really, understanding psychology is a good way to detect and understand various fraud schemes. and so the the way I joined this team was because of my interest in always the rationalization component of of fraud. And so what we tried to do is take various cases and use um, psychology and psychiatry as um, as a foundation to understand why, People commit fraud and really how the brain works around fraud. And so it reads like a um, business medical book, if if you can imagine the combination of that. So it's really interesting um, for fraud lovers. (laughs)
1: <laughs> fraud lovers, right? So, uh, so that it is very interesting because, uh, and again, this is an area that to sort of vexes me uh, constantly when I'm when I'm going through my analysis for the Marquet report. Uh, what is it? What makes these people tick? What makes them do these things? I mean, you have, for example, you know, the the investment fraud artists, some of whom are very, very calculated, uh, and who. You know, are are drawing people into their web. They're the new investors that are that are essentially paying the old investors, and this is something that they're consciously doing. But then you, ha- but 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 some folks, some of these people, they start out because oh, they made a bad trade, and they've got to cover it. Oh, well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna hide that. I'm gonna cover it with these other funds. I'm gonna commingle these these funds, and uh, we're gonna. You know, I'm going to make it up, and, and I'll be uh, I'll be better. Of course, they double down, and then they get, it gets worse, and it gets worse from there. Is isn't that true?
2: Absolutely, um, and and I think um, this idea of excessive optimism is what you just described. Um, I think that. By human nature, we don't like to lose. We don't like to fail. We don't like to let people know that we failed. And so sometimes some of these really good people just don't want to own up to the fact that I didn't win this time. And so, and that's hard for most of us if you really think about it. It's hard to go back to your family and your friends and say, my business is failing or I didn't do as well as I thought I was going to do. And so some of, and because we all have opportunities, to cover things up often, I think that's when you see the beginning of fraud. And, and like you do with your work, you know, no one wakes up one day and say, oh, I'm going to embezzle $10 million from a company or $500,000 from a company. It typically starts small. And um, in the case of um, what happened with Dixon, it started small.
1: Let's, uh, so let, that's a good segue here. Let's talk about uh, your, your upcoming uh, documentary, All the Queen's Horses, and uh, the Rita Cronwell story. Uh, tell, the, uh, tell our audience uh, the story. Uh, just, sure. just go with it.
2: Okay. Well, Rita Cromwell was um, born and raised in the Dixon area. Dixon is, um, like I said, 100 miles Uh, west of Chicago, Illinois, and uh, uh, Rita was the city comptroller, and uh, she was the city comptroller for over 20 years, and she managed everything in the town. She was in charge of everything. So uh, what happened was she um, started embezzling funds from... The city. Now the annual budget of the city was between six and eight million dollars a year. Okay. And Rita embezzled 53 million. She pretty much embezzled everything that the, the town took in. But she was able to do this because she, she was entirely, um, in charge of all of the finances. So she received the mail. She deposited the checks. Um, she wrote, she, she managed the budget. She did it all. Now, What was interesting about this town is they have a commissioned form of government. So you have a lot of part-time commissioners that are overseeing um, the operations of the town. But Rita was the one full-time person that maintained everything. What's also interesting about Rita is she was one of the number one quarter horse breeders in the country. She won 52 world championships for the American Quarter Horse Association. And um, what I'm... like to say about Rita is she's a great example of lifestyle fraud. She lived out in the open. Um, She made as of 2012 her annual salary was $80,000 a year but yet she owned over 401 horses. Um, So very fascinating case, but a very simple fraud scheme. And as as you know with your report and and your show, most of these schemes are relatively easy. You don't see a lot of schemes like Enron um, of the world. Most of the schemes are pretty basic. And so what Rita was able to do is she opened up a bank account in the name of the city, but she was the signer on that account. And she um, took money out of the city accounts and put money into this secret account and lived lavishly bought horses bought real estate threw parties bought jewelry and um, and she did this for over 20 years the way she was kept, the way this was uh, discovered was one day while Rita was on vacation she, um, the city clerk, a city clerk by the name of Kathy Swanson, opened the mail and noticed that there was an account that she was unfamiliar with and it had all these um withdrawals coming out of the account and she was it was at the end of the month where she was requesting information from the bank and saw this and immediately contacted Mayor, Mayor Burke. And so once Mayor Burke saw this, he contacted the FBI, and the FBI launched an investigation, and then Rita was arrested in uh, April of 2012. So that's what happened.
1: So she here's a woman who came to believe her lifestyle was based, was, you know, which was financed by, The the good people of Dixon, Illinois, and their hard-earned money, with a budget between six and nine million dollars a year, siphoning off that averages out to, you know, over two and a half million dollars a year that she was stealing from the town. Am I right about that? Is my math off?
2: Um, you're right. You know, when you, when you average it out like that, yes. Um, there were years, you know, there, were, she had some light years and some heavy years and during the
1: so, well, and she, she, she started out smaller, I assume.
2: She started out small, but small in comparison to where she ended. But I think according to government documents, her first, her first step was around $180,000, which is, I would say relatively large, but given the fact that there were years where she stole up to $8 million. Then you
1: know, a hundred thousand is not that big. No, but I mean, so she takes this money and she builds this uh, quarter horse farm, this quarter horse business, basically. And she I, she had what two
2: farms? She had two farms. Yeah, she had one in Beloit, Wisconsin, and one in Dixon, Illinois.
1: And so she's showing these horses all around the place people are buying horses obviously and and uh she's winning all kinds of awards and getting all kinds of accolades and she's she's a pillar in the community what are what do the people in the community think i mean they, they, i mean I, they think she was just wealthy to begin with how did how does she get away with this
2: well um so i decided to do a second documentary about this and so with at work Interviewed numerous people, experts. I have interviewed Rita, not yet. Hopefully, I will. Um, but I've interviewed residents of Dixon, and some of the rumors that um, were with among the town was she had a wealthy investor in her in her business um, that her family owned satellite stock and Campbell's soup stock, and um, she received large dividends. And if you notice, these rumors are you can't really can't prove them. I mean, she could have had an investor. And that could have been bankrolling all of her operations. But one thing that was interesting is when the U.S. Marshals um, seized her property and started caring for her horses. The U.S. Marshals were spending two hundred thousand dollars a month taking care of all of those horses. So I think that there were people that asked questions, but the answers that they received were just you couldn't keep you couldn't push back on that. You know how could you say show me that you have an investor. So I think it was very difficult for them to go to forward with it. Um, what's interesting about this case is uh, the neighboring towns um, in that part of, of Illinois, Sterling, Illinois, to be exact, neighboring towns, similar population, similar budget size, didn't have, they weren't in the red, they were profitable. And so about a year before Rita was arrested, their uh, city engineer, a gentleman by the name of Scott Schumart, wrote an open letter saying, "I've, I've done some investigation work, and I'm trying to understand why Dixon is so bad off and we're not. And he was preparing for a meeting with his city council to show um, why it's so important to put the appropriate internal controls in place. And he was using, uh, he he didn't know he was talking about Dixon or, or discovering a fraud, but he actually was. So there were a lot of, something just not quite right with Dixon. And it took Kathy Swanson that day to discover that it was something right. not right.
1: Very wrong, very wrong, and so yeah, it's taking two and a half million dollars a year just to to feed and care for these horses. Uh, I assume they they sold these, sold them all off in auction, and and hopefully got uh, got something back.
2: They did. So, with, um, they did receive um after selling the horses, and the marshals spent around two hundred thousand dollars um caring for the horses. Um, but they did auction them off. They were able to sell them. And Dixon, uh, later sued their auditors and a sole proprietor audit, like a mom and shop audit firm or accounting firm and sister bank. And they received a 40 million dollar settlement from, from, uh, those three parts. So all, all in all, Dixon was able to They'll, they'll bring home about $40 million after the marshals receive their um, money and after the attorney fees have been paid, which is remarkable in most fraud cases, if you think about it, for them to
1: receive that amount. So the town went after the deep pockets here, and ultimately we're able to get relatively good money on, on the dollar. Okay, folks, we're going to have to take another short break here. We'll be back for a, a short last segment uh, in just two minutes.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International Professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit Markay International.com or call 617-733-3304. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk.
1: And welcome back, Fraud Talkers. We are speaking today with Dr. Kelly Richmond-Pope, who is an author and a professor of accounting at DePaul University Dryhouse College of Business. She is also a documentary filmmaker, and she is currently working on finishing up the the uh, story uh, about Rita Cronwell, which we've been hearing about in gory detail, uh, called All the Queen's Horses. She, of course, being the queen, Rita Cronwell, that is. Uh, and if you'd like to join us today, uh, call at 866-472-5790. Uh, we'd have, uh, love to take your call if uh, if you'd like to call in and, and join the discussion. Um, welcome back, Dr. Pope. Thank you. So we've been talking about the uh, the Rita Cronwell case, and she so she's been sentenced to I think it was nineteen and a half years in in uh, prison, and this was this is federally prosecuted, correct?
2: Absolutely.
1: So she's gonna go or she's up in uh, Wisconsin at, she's in Minnesota.
2: Uh, she's in a Minnesota Min- federal prison.
1: Okay, right. Uh, and, and is there a chance that she would get out sooner than the later?
2: Well, you know, when you look at um, federal time, um typically you're you serve eighty five percent of that time. So I'm not certain that she get out early. Maybe on good behavior, I'm not sure. Um I was uh, in the courthouse in the room when she was actually sentenced. So I've I've been back and forth to Dixon. I've traveled with the US marshals and I did some filming of her home in Florida and um the day of uh sentencing I remember Judge Reinhardt saying that um, she was, um, was it was so egregious what she did, and he took her into custody right then and there. And oftentimes, people have um, 30 to 60 days to get their personal affairs in order, but she didn't. Uh, she was immediately taken into custody. So I'm not certain that she would be released on good behavior. I really don't know.
1: Good. Well, I hope she doesn't. I mean, it really was egregious, and frankly, the the most egregious story I've ever heard. She now go, going back to the psychology. I mean, was she contrite at all? I mean, what what what, what do you think? You know, this was an, this sounds to me like an, a lifestyle entitlement uh, situation. You
2: know, it seems like it, it, you know Rita never did, and she's never done any interviews, and it seems like with her, she could, she had access. And she realized that no one was looking. And it's almost like when I when I'm in my class, I explain this to my students. I talk about it this way. If you were walking down the street and you and there was a bank, no one was in the bank and the and the vault was open, filled with money, and there's no cameras and nobody looking, would you go in and take five dollars? And I, I, I equate that to what it must have felt like to Rita with no one paying attention to anything that she was doing. She being absolutely in charge of all of the town's finances and nobody knowing. And so she just started to take and take and take and take. And that's what I would imagine that she realized that no one was looking at her. And I'm sure after year three, she convinced herself that this was okay to do because to... to, To do something like that for that period of time at that amount of money, um, that has to have some some impact on your psyche after a while. Because twenty years stealing fifty three million dollars by yourself, because it was proven that there were no co conspirators, so she did this alone, according to the marshals and the FBI. So um, there has to be some type of personality trait that she that she exhibits or either adapted to through the through those years.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. So um, let, let me shift gears a little bit here, which is, um, and, and you teach you teach forensic accounting, um, and, and what, what in, in this particular case, we're talking about a governmental entity, a government, uh, a municipal municipality. In this case, but what I found in my research is that. You know, after financial institutions, government entities are either the second or third most frequent victims of, of embezzlement and fraud. What, mm-hmm. you know, what are some of the yellow flags, red flags? I mean, what do you teach your students to look out for? And, and what can, and so this is a multi part question here, <laughs> what can these government bodies do? uh, to help protect themselves and prevent them, you know, this kind of thing from occurring?
2: Sure. You know, I think the easiest one and the most frequent one and the most, the hardest one to implement is segregation of duties. Because I think that with Rita and with most of these cases, the lack of segregation of duties is what leads to so many problems. Um, and I think that the, another, um, easy thing to implement is the perception of oversight. You know, if if you think that someone is watching what you're doing or paying attention to what you're doing, you're less likely to do something. And so I think implementing the perception of oversight would be really important. Um, I think also uh, making sure that you have people in place that have some type of financial training. When you look at Dixon, uh, most of the city Commissioners did not, were not trained in basic financial matters. Just basic. I'm not saying you need to be a CPA or have a degree in accounting or a degree in finance, but you just need to have some basic understanding of fiscal management so that you can ask the right questions and keep, if you, if the answer doesn't make sense, you have enough uh, knowledge to keep pushing a little bit forward. But, I think with governmental entities you find that there's the lack of internal control and segregation of duties typically is so high that these systems are so easy to manipulate
1: so so we're talking in the, in the Rita case and frankly and I think in probably a lot of other cases of governmental uh, fraud cases, uh, The you say the perception of oversight, which is not nec- not necessarily actual oversight. Uh, in this case, we had a complete lack of oversight and a complete lack of perception of oversight. Uh, but the importance of the, the perception being, oh, well, at any time somebody could be watching or somebody could be auditing, so somebody could be coming in, poking and testing, that alone would be an effective deterrent, correct?
2: I absolutely agree with that. I think the perception is 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 key. Um, the the actual oversight is important, but I think the perception is is almost equally as important.
1: So is and, and that perception can be created at little cost.
2: At little cost. At little cost. Absolutely
1: because i mean if you're constantly auditing whatever obviously that's that's huge cost and that's what that's that that's simply not doable in in most e- even in a, from a government entity to a private entity it doesn't
2: Absolutely. matter mm-hmm. you know and something as small as um when you look at a lot of these embezzlement cases especially um and you um i think the um your show last monday had a business owner who um was faced with uh, an employee embezzling from her. And yeah. I think the perception of oversight, even if somebody, if you seemed as though you were opening the mail, um, maybe you didn't even read it, but if you seemed as though the mail was open before you passed it over to your bookkeeper, that's a perception of oversight, that you looked at something. Because if, you, if they think that you're paying attention, they may be less likely to do something. Right. So... I think well, do, I think that that's a very low cost internal low cost uh, internal control that can be implemented at a lot of different levels.
1: Sure. So the so so do you, your perception. We don't have a lot of time here. The uh, government for government governmental bodies that that there is as compared to privately held entities or certainly publicly held entities that there is a a vast difference in the control structure and the financial control
2: structure. Absolutely.
1: So, so, mo- so you would say that most government or small government bodies really lack the financial um, the financial controls that they they should be they should impose.
2: I, I do. I believe that, and I think that using uh, Dixon is such a, a, a excellent case because if it can happen in Dixon, it can happen anywhere. If it can happen in a small town with 16,000 people and an annual budget between $6 and $8 million, and one person can steal $53 million, it can happen anywhere.
1: Wow. Well, it's a great story. Uh, Dr. Pope, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your, uh, your, your insight, and, and frankly, we could probably talk for another three hours. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Pope, and uh, join us again next Monday, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, for another edition of
0: Fraud Talk.
2: Thank you so much, Chris,
0: for having me. Thank you for listening to Fraud Talk this week. Please join Chris Marquet again next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Don't become a victim of fraud. Tune in for another show soon.